Good afternoon and welcome to TRSI. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I can't remember if that's the normal way I open the show, but I'm sure it's close enough to not matter, unless you're some sort of obsessive. Michael, how are you? I'm okay, Gary. Um, delighted to be back after our lovely Christmas holiday break. I had a very pleasant Christmas. I am one of those, it feels like rarer and rarer creatures these days. I actually like Christmas. So, uh, why do people feel the need to go? As if it gives them some kind of moral value to complain, oh, I can't stand Christmas. Oh, I just wish it was over. Jesus, lads, come on. A few lights, have a drink, have a turkey sandwich. People think I don't like Christmas, but actually I quite like Christmas and all of the time off that you get around it um, because I get an amazing amount of work done that just hasn't been done during the year. All those people are not annoying you because they're off doing things. Yeah, yeah. It's like why you do work late at night or early in the morning because you can actually focus on one thing apart from the hundreds of other things that will happen You know, when people can actually talk to you. And that's how you end up getting invited to Brussels to speak on... Uh, press freedoms or whatever the hell I'm going to Brussels to speak on during the week. Yeah, I'm sure Brussels will be delighted to have you. Anywhere is delighted to have you. It's true. I'm a delight. I'm well known to Well be. known. So I wanted to open the show by giving a shout out to Einar, the Irish Network Against Racism. But I'm going to have to put that to the side, Michael, because there was just a little thing I wanted to mention to people because I thought it was quite interesting. So as you do, Michael, I, when I got back on my first day of work was going through the Oroctus Library and Research Service to see what they had published. And I'd actually missed one in late December that had come out on the 40th Amendment of the Constitution, the the bill that is coming out, Michael, to, um, what was it Roderick O'Gorman said, to enshrine in the Irish Constitution our support and care for carers, oh, I yeah. believe, was what he said. Yes, yes. And I was reading through this this uh, report on it. It's, it's relatively long. It's about 30 pages long. But there was a very interesting point that they made in it. And we've said before, Michael, that Article 41.2 has been argued to be one of the, the constitutional basis for childcare. Now, that hasn't really been tested in the courts. It's been a legal opinion that's been put forward. Other people have said that it's entirely symbolic, that, you know, there's no really any need for it. And there would be there would be found to be a constitutional requirement otherwise. But it's never really been considered. But there's an interesting legal case that's brought up in this Oroctus report, given that this referendum is, you know, Michael, as we're being told, being done to recognise the importance of carers. And it's this. The Supreme Court in 2024 had been set to hear a case that was going to consider Article 41.2. The Supreme Court itself had said that Article 41.2 has not been the subject of extensive consideration by this or other courts. And What they were going to look at it about, Michael, was in the context of the provision of public funds to parents who are obliged to care on a full-time basis for severely disabled children. And it relates to a case in which they argued that carer's allowance should be made available to a wide category of individuals who were caring for people, Michael. And they they were found against them. But they're now going to the Supreme Court. But the interesting thing, Michael, there is that if they were to win at the Supreme Court, and it was found that Article 41.2 actually constitutionally required the state to support, at some level, those who care full-time for severely disabled children, which I think, Michael, we would fit normally in the context of carers, then one would argue that the Constitution actually already 
fully recognises the worth of carers, but that successive governments have simply not done anything, anything about it. And now the the Supreme Court, by the way, said that they would uh, that granting leave for the appeal to be heard, uh, allowing the, the appealers to bypass the Court of Appeal to bring it directly to the Supreme Court on October of 2023. Which is to say, Michael, the government would have known when they brought forward this referendum to enshrine the rights of carers in the Constitution that in 2024, presumably after this referendum is scheduled to be held, there would be a Supreme Court case which would find that out, and which, holding this referendum, would seem to invalidate the entire case of. It would be kind of odd, Michael, if that Supreme Court case, let's say, had come to a determination that the existing constitutional language actually put a financial responsibility upon the government, and it was replaced by language which, while sounding very fluffy and wonderful for carers, actually removed any reference to their financial support. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it would be, shall we say, a, a perverse result on the face of it, that in the name of being loving and caring and giving lots of recognition to people, they actually took out of the Constitution the little bit of law that actually made, said that the government was required to financially support, to some degree, parents supporting uh, children with severe disabilities in their home. Uh, I think you would have to be Two things. First, beyond cynical, and secondly, have a respect for the degree to which the government is paying attention to suggest that this is actually a dark, cunning plan. I think it is more likely just a piece of gross and fairly horrible ineptitude on on behalf of the government. I would suspect you're right, but it is the sort of thing that you would expect to be aware of And being aware of it, even if you didn't think it was something to be brought into consideration, and also being aware that previous people, like the Special Raconteur on children, has previously said that 41.2 is actually incredibly important for child benefit, you would think that if you were an unpopular government, Michael, you might think twice before going, should we hold a referendum which is going to open us to people saying that we actually want to remove any chance that carers can be found to be constitutionally protected, and that we may also be removing the constitutional backing for the universal requirement to prov- or the requirement to provide universal child benefit or child maintenance payments they would be the sort of thing that you would think a politically astute government would consider and then follow up with and actually do we need to do any of this at all okay not not to ask the the bleeding obvious but what has this government done in the last year or in the last X number of years that would in any way suggest to you that they were politically astute? Well, eh. struggling there, Gary, struggling. I mean, I have heard some people very cynically say that they want these referendums to fail. Uh, Most people said that after Neil Richmond came out and said that redefining the family would have a massive impact on family reunification in asylum processing. That was... At which point people said, that's very hard to just say without thinking about what you're actually saying. But, I mean, Michael, there's being unaware of the political implications you're having. And then there's holding two referendums, which even at a glance, you should have been able to go, right, so we're going to have a referendum on illegal immigrants bringing more people into the country, the possibility that we're removing the basis of universal child maintenance payments, and that we may be removing something which requires us to actually pay carers some sort of allowance without means test, or or, or to at least consider 
that there is a constitutional requirement there to deal with them in some way. Like, the, that is not the ground. Like, I've, I've been involved in some unpopular referendums, Michael. Yeah. And even I, if I was asked to take that job, would think, I mean, all of them together at once. And throw into that at the, you know, in the political, the, the particular political moment that we're living through, the fact that they're, as it's being framed by certain uh, opponents, that they're going to take the word woman out of the Constitution. They're going to delete women from the Constitution. They're going to take the word the home is going to be removed from the Constitution. Well, I mean, Michael, it's very important to note here that, yes, they will be removing the word women from the Constitution, but the word woman will still appear, I think, twice. So in that way, Michael, maybe it's more of a comment on the importance of the individual. It's that's it. Okay. I mean, it's got to be something. You see, I don't think it got to be anything. And then we had Roderick O'Gorman coming out with a statement which may have been intended to be, you know, perfectly non-threatening, but did have a sort of... Nice NGO you had there. Shame if something happened to it, telling to it. <laughs> with the whole, well, if uh, NGOs aren't going to support this government's referendum, they're going to have to explain why. Wait, no, you see, you, you got there before me. Just three examples. You're talking about a government, you know, and showing political astuteness and awareness and whatever. First, you have the Neil Richmond thing, right? And Neil Richmond said, well, this is great because by replacing this, the notion of family connections with durable relationships, and I challenge anybody to tell me how the hell you're going to define successfully from the point of view of practical law, what constitutes a durable relationship. That's just, that's, that's going to fry anybody. That is going to make it easier for people to bring people in. And that's a good thing. Right now, I'm not, you know, I'm not, in, I'm not saying that it's not a good thing. I, I'm not commenting on the rightness of the wrong of the comment. But as a political, at a political moment, when the polling shows that there is, shall we say, Gary, some degree of concern or anxiety about the way that immigration is being managed in the country, that he should say, "Oh, this is a great thing." And Neil Richard, I have to—it's something of a mystery to me. Everybody I talk to that knows the man, and I don't know him from a hole in the ground, tells me that he's one of the nicest men in the doll and that he's a very bright guy, competent, good, bright guy. And yet, in the last, when he appears on Twitter or he appears on social media or when he makes comments, I think, where is this Neil Richmond? The other, he must be kept in a, in a, in a cupboard at home. And this other Neil Richmond comes out in public because I never see this bright, lovely man. No, whatever about lovely man, this terribly bright, engaged, informed politician. How in the name of God? Then we had, yes, as you said, the, the, the conspiracy theorists. Ah, this is actually an indication that they're trying to lose. Then you've Roderick. Roderick comes out with this thing. That, what was it? Any organisation that sees itself as progressive and is wanting to advance progressive change will have to explain why they do not support these plans. Now, we could say simply and take it as a plain reading that all he wants is an explanation. You know, just just tell us, lads, why. But there is that element. It does have that sound about it, as you said. Oh, that was a nice NGO you had there. It would be a terrible pity if something happened to it, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, it didn't sound... At the same time, he also comes out, was the, the, the week before it, when he announced, just blandly, that, you know, whatever about all this talk that people are giving out about people coming in and doing what they're doing in the system and blah, blah, blah. The reality is we are going to have to accept that the, the reality is they're going to be looking at at least 15,000 asylum seekers a year 
from if, in the future. That's just going to be the reality. I think, why would you say that? I mean, it's, is this his idea of tough love, of you know, telling it straight, and you know, people will like that? The, the, the internal dynamics of the government on immigration and asylum seekers are fascinating because when we hear things from the cabinet or from the discussions of the parties, it's not always the politicians and the parties you would expect to take a certain position who do take that position. So there have been multiple times when O'Gorman has taken the more hardline position, possibly because O'Gorman has to deal with more of it mm-hmm. and is a bit more aware that this is not a this is not going well. And this is not going well. Now, I will say O'Gorman came out, and this is, I'm sure, Michael, just unfortunate timing, but O'Gorman came out with that on Monday. And on Saturday, the National Women's Council of Ireland had a piece in the Irish Times saying that voting no on this would be retrograde and would end the political momentum uh, on women's rights for a generation. Yeah, there was no connection there. No, no, and it's, it's totally incidental that the NWCI, as, as many other good and respectable NGOs in this country, Michael, uh, receive so much funding from government. Yeah, because they certainly don't get it from their, their vast membership. Now, that's not nice. <laughs> well, sorry. I wanted to, but as I was saying, I wanted to open by congratulating Einar on taking a bold move uh, first, Michael, they came out and said that there is absolutely no evidence that the Irish government is taking the threat of the far right seriously. And I just wanted to acknowledge the boldness of this, given that as someone who has read Einar's research on racism, accusing anyone else of taking something not seriously is is very much out there, Michael. It's it's very much asking for someone to make a comment. How so? Are you suggesting that Einar is less than serious in its approach to its research methodologies? Well, I mean, Michael, in this country, on this podcast, in this defamation regime, I can't really say a lot about it, but I wouldn't call it, should we say, best in class. Okay. And I think we'll just leave it at that. But there was another point I wanted to make. Einar came out and said that they, during the week, I believe it was to News Talk, that they had been collecting information of people, pulling together stuff from social media and the like, uh, pulling them into dossiers, and then sending them on to the guards. Yeah, that's lovely. Which I thought was a very interesting thing. So I thought, you know what, Gary, you should reach out to the DPC, the Data Protection Commission, and ask them, how can this be done? Now, obviously, they're not going to comment on an individual case, Michael, but they did send me over some stuff for how an organization could legally do this. And I think what Einar would say, assuming that they have given proper uh, thought to how they can do this legally, is that they would refer to Article 6.1e of the GDPR, which is that processing the information is necessary for the performance of a task carried out in the public interest mm-hmm. or in the excess of official authority vested in the controller. But that's not that's not really them. Now, I would be quite interested. I'm not. This is very much not my area. There's probably case law on this already, if not in Ireland, certainly within the wider EU. I would be very interested if an NGO collecting information like that would fall into that purview. And I think, Michael, ignoring any potential breaches of the GDPR, there's a there's another reason why you wouldn't really want to do this sort of thing. There is a thing under the GDPR called a, a DSAR or DSAR or Data Subject Access Request. What that enables a person to do is to send a note to an organization asking that that organization send over 
any personal data on that person the organization is processing. And this is constrained, as in it is, it is legally constrained, that there's a time limit to respond to it in, and there's ways you have to respond to it, and it's set what you can ask for and how you ask for it, and it's very, very easy to do. If someone were to Google it after hearing of its existence on this podcast, they would find a template with no bother at all. That is a bit of a problem, Michael, because what are two of those things you can deal with? But let's say you get dozens of them because you haven't said whose information you're collecting. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of an administrative burden. And if, God forbid, some groups that felt that they might be coming under scrutiny and perhaps under unfair scrutiny were to generate some kind of more widespread public campaign for people to make this application, then that could go from 50 to 100 to 1,000. And... You could look at the situation where you suddenly, are you saying potentially they could be just snowed under, where the only thing they would be doing would be responding to these applications? I'm suggesting, Michael, that a, a situation could arise where even if they had done nothing wrong, mm -hmm. they could have, through their own action, annoyed enough people to create such a heavy bureaucratic obligation on themselves that it would cost them a fantastic amount of time and study. They might not even have time to write another one of their, uh, I suppose we'd call it a report on racism, because they'll be so busy responding to these things within the legally constrained time limit they have. Well, it would be terrible if that happened, because that would, if, you, if that were to eventuate, and they were not therefore in a position to write one of their splendid reports, they were too busy doing this, that would be just awful. It would be, and I mean, a real problem with this is, as I said, Michael, it's, it's a part of the GDPR, it can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't like the person who sends it in, which is the response many NGOs take to criticism. Yeah. So, it would also be very possible for them to incorrectly respond to something like this if they're not very familiar right. with data subject rights and how to deal with these sorts of things in bulk. And um, that that could be a problem because you could turn something that isn't an issue into an issue because you just don't know what you're doing, um, even if you're acting from the uh, you know, everyone's best interest. And obviously having a, an organisation like INR trawling through the internet and checking up on fellow citizens, comments on social media and then report, then send them on to the guards, that is on, obviously on the face of it, something that we would like to see in our society. That's a very positive thing, no doubt. So it's done with the best of intentions and a pure heart. It would be very sad that if that would then through just a, a slip up, a, a bureaucratic error, an administrative failure lead to legal consequences, it'd just be awful. And I mean, Michael, you know, these things cost money, yeah, which is recognised by everyone. So in cases, in certain cases, you can charge a small fee or a reasonable fee for administrative costs. But here's the interesting thing. Yes. You can't charge a general fee to process one of these things. And if you're going to charge a reasonable fee for administrative costs, you have to show that the request is unfounded or excessive. Now, the problem there, Michael, is that if you were to go on a national radio station and say that you are trawling social media to create dossiers in order to give them to the police, but not giving any detail of who those people were, it would be very hard to say that a request from someone who's even tangentially involved in that area of the online space is unfounded or excessive. So you wouldn't even be able to charge an administrative fee to cover what could be quite a lot of work. It's a nightmare. Slightly tangentially. I mean, 
are we also here talking about not just the guards, but them now compiling along with other stuff, lots of it, what they might regard as non-crime, non-crime hate incidents? Well, I mean, that would also be the case, uh, you know, one would assume, because they're interested in that sort of thing, but we couldn't say with any great certainty. And it would be very interesting, Michael, if they are collecting information on the basis of a task carried out in the public interest, but it's not actually for something which is recognised for a st- as a crime by the state. It would be... I don't know how easy it would be to claim that you're acting, that you can legally take all of this information in in the public interest when you're collecting it for purposes you know don't rise to the level of a crime. But Michael, I think this is this is beyond us in many ways, And but it would be very shameful were all of those things to happen. You know, Michael, there is a reason you don't go onto a national radio station and go, oh, by the way, lads. Well, unless you're going, you think you're going on the radio station to tell the people on the radio station that you're doing a wonderful, useful and virtuous thing and you should be slapped on the back and possibly should be even your, your funding should be increased in order that you should be able to do more of this kind of stuff. It might be my general low opinion of Irish NGOs, but I do wonder if you were to go up to some of the Einar chaps and say, or Curry, who's the head of Einar, uh, not, not a great fan of Gript from some of his uh, public and private comments, and said, oh, by the way, you know, what was your legal advice when you decided you were going to do this, uh, you know, in order to not breach data protection uh, acts? Because, you know, it can be quite heavy fines if you... Well, individual fines are actually quite small. The problem is you get one for every breach, and if you improperly collect data from 10 people, that's 10 breaches, not one. Yes. Um, I would just... I would wonder, would the immediate expression on his face confer to you that this was a man confident in that legal advice or a man desperately trying to think had he gotten legal advice i'm sure they got lots of lovely legal advice on the topic of immigration michael yes the dutch study yes uh, that came out there a very interesting dutch study um well it'd be more i think it'd be more proper to call it a um a report it's called the borderless welfare state the consequences of immigration for public finances and it's a dutch study that was done um, using what i think is the equivalent of their cso that their census data and it was looking at the impact that immigrants had on the finances of the dutch state and it was able to break down why those immigrants had come into the country was it for work was it for study was it to you know was it for family purposes where they came from down to the country level it's a very detailed study um the actual report is about 300 pages long but it is actually very very interesting because this is a, a topic that has been talked about at length it has been known for a long time in policy and political circles that the modern pension system is basically a ponzi scheme yeah and i don't mean that as in with any sort of negative intonation i mean it is legitimately a ponzi scheme it requires, or if you want to say it, a pyramid scheme. Slightly different, but you know they both work for this. It requires a constant increase in the amount of workers to pay for an older and older population uh, who are living longer and longer. And if that ever doesn't happen, if you don't get new people in at the bottom, it becomes more and more um, unsustainable. I believe the public pension hole at the minute in Ireland, Michael, is about 170 billion euro. Yeah, and we're not the worst. No, no, we're nowhere near the worst. So they looked by country. And so in relation to pension, so with that being known, and it was generally accepted that Westerners 
we're just not going to have more children. Now, having less children was an inevitable consequence of wealth rather than any other cultural factor and that nothing could be done for it. One of the reasons why we have seen a movement in support for quite large spread immigration is explicitly to deal with the pension issue. Now, that's not usually said to the public, but that's what a lot of it was for. And there has been an assumption, basically, that these people could be substituted for indigenous um, a growth and that basically the numbers keep going up and therefore these people will prop up the pension system and it'll keep things going. And I just want to emphasize at this point how important keeping the pension system going is, both politically and to the people who depend on it. Uh, incredibly important. It would be devastating to lose it for a lot of people and a lot of politicians. So it was assumed that these people were basically replacing uh, you know, the lost births that we lost due to increased wealth. But there's actually very little research done on the economic impact of these migrants, but it was assumed to be positive. This research says it's not, and it says it's not to such an extent that it is, it's not good. It's very much not good. You're talking about, I believe the figures here in some of the years they're talking about, they're saying that the Dutch spent uh, you know, 16 billion dealing with the cost of immigrants. So some basic stats on, on the Dutch population. There's 17 million people, uh, Dutch inhabitants living there. 13% were uh, are immigrants and 11% are children of immigrants. In 2016, they say partially due to the refugee crisis, costs on that section of the population were 32 billion euros. The total cost, they say, on immigrant populations between 1995 and 2019 was 400 billion euros, which they say is the same order of magnitude as the total Dutch national or natural gas re revenues from the start of extraction until 2019. And then they project ahead and say if things continue as they are, over the next two decades, the cost of these immigrant families will be roughly 600 billion euros. Now, there are a number of, of things that are quite interesting in this that I don't think people would have expected, or at least not generally expected in policy circles. One, I, one of them I found the most interesting was this. When people come, uh, moved there, and were very high performers, their children tended to return to the kind of Dutch baseline. So, you know, the parents are very high performing, the children perform as would be normal for, for Dutch people. The families who came there who were drains on Dutch society, on at least, that, that might be unfair to them, Michael, on, let's say on the financial reserves of the state, yeah. their children were also a negative to the Dutch revenues, which is to say the positive benefit of emigration financially was largely cancelled out in the second generation, but the second generation of, of, um, of drains continues. Basic end result of this report is they say that with these statistics, it's not really a question of what will happen if we continue as we are. We cannot use these people to basically um, to keep this thing running. And we are going to have to decide whether or not we want to have 
any sort of mass immigration or we want a welfare state. And there is no way we can keep both of these things together. They also make the very interesting argument that the highest performing immigrants go into the country, they're very beneficial for the country, and then they tend to leave. Then they might go to another country, they might go home. But they argue that the welfare system keeps the worst performing uh, immigrants in the country because it supports them. So over time, the problem is actually getting worse because yeah. you're building up this mass of people who are just never going to leave. I think that for a long time, <clears throat> one of the things was that we regarded immigration uh, as a kind of a, an undifferentiated thing. We just It was just this generalized thing, immigration, which was people not from the country coming into the country. And there was, there was, there was a sense that it was just, there would be some which would be, high, shall we say, higher, high achievers and high contributors, and there'd be others, but it would all work itself out in the mean, you know? And then over time, then it would all, the first, second, third generations, then they would, the, the difference, these differences would disappear into the culture. But it turns out that it's not quite as undifferentiated as we had thought. And I would have been one of those people because I, I would be on coming from sort of that free market, liberally kind of a economics background. I think, you know, free movement of goods and services and also of people is a, is a good thing in economics. And for a long time, I think there was also, there was a fair degree of evidence that in certain situations, economies in certain at a certain level of development, immigration seemed to be a net positive. But maybe the problem was that there wasn't enough differentiation going on. The Dutch, you're talking about the Dutch, the Danes, not the, an academics, but there was a report con compiled by the Danish Ministry for Finance, which was published in 2018, right? Which said that uh, 31 billion kroner was the net cost to the Danish economy of what they de defined as non-Western immigration. Now, 30, the 31 billion kroner, which I <laughs> googled, works out at around 4 billion euro. So it's not pennies, 4 billion quid. And that was 2,000, there was 2 billion less than 2,000, and down from 42 billion in 2014. Now, um, Western immigrants were considered to be all the EU countries, along with Andorra, Australia, Canada, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Monaco, New Zealand, Norway, San Marino, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Vatican. How many immigrants they were getting in Denmark from the Vatican, I do not know. And then everybody else was just considered non-Western. So that was all of Latin America, all of Africa, all of Asia. Then they did something new, right? They now then continue to do to divide to differentiate within the within the groups and they have now divided the non-western classification into what they call the menat countries and other non-western countries and menap refers to middle east north africa plus pakistan and turkey and they discovered that the former of these two groups that that's the menap cost 24 billion of the 31 billion so again a significant differentiation within it and by the way, it's just it's an important point that this is a net figure. This this does take into account both the tax and the contributions made by immigrant workers coming into Denmark. So it's it's a net figure. 
and I, it, speaking against the point of the, that the Dutch seem to be making, the Dutch is done with rather more detail and more longitudinal. That we have, we are facing into a choice about how we manage or how we think about these population inflows. You're absolutely right. We had for years we said we need people. We have to have young people who will come in and work, be productive, pay taxes, and those taxes will be used to fund the gaps in the pension funding. If it starts to turn out that that's not actually what's happening, well then I. I, then the whole thing becomes a rather more difficult question of how we go forward here. I think the the one thing I would say is both of these studies are, are net. So yes, it's it's the supports they get and any taxes they pay. One thing that the Dutch study doesn't uh, cover, and as if I recall, Michael, the one you're referencing doesn't cover either because it would be very difficult to work out, is if there are other economic benefits from their consumption patterns basically the, a multiplier of the state one. I, I will put a link to this in the podcast below. And if people are interested, I advise you to look at page 18 of the, it's in the executive summary, it's table two. And it is the average net contribution of immigrants to public finance by their motive, including the cost for the second generation. I think one of the problems, Michael, is when you see the stats laid out, you kind of go through it and you're like, yeah, yeah, that actually, yeah, that all kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, well, what happens if people emigrate to come in from Japan or Britain or Switzerland or North America? Yeah. There were 200,000 as an average across, you know, labor, study, family and asylum migration. Whereas what hap- what is the average of people who come in from the Horn of Africa and Sudan? It's a net cost of 600,000. That all kind of flows. Interesting. The only The only stat on it that I didn't expect is that the average impact of a immigrant from uh, Southern Africa, which they say is de facto South Africa, yes, the Republic of South Africa, is a net benefit of one hundred and fifty thousand. Huh. Yeah, and that would be that would be you know, as I said, across labour, study, family, and asylum. So if you take the rest of Africa, disastrous for public finances, but South Africa, actually very solid. Morocco really bad as well that's minus 150,000 so I think this shows Michael if you want immigration to fund your your tax affairs what you want is labor immigration from Japan North America and Oceania uh, because they're worth an additional 625,000 and if you want to lose money asylum immigration from Africa each each asylum seeker is minus 625,000 net so balancing out any contributions they might make. So we were saying, Michael, 15,000 asylum seekers. That's Roderick O'Gorman's new normal, isn't it? Yeah, that's the new normal going forward. I mean, if they, if we were to take these figures across, and Michael, you shouldn't do this. You can't actually do this. Oh. But just as an indicative sort of thing, if we were to take that across and say, you know, if all of those 15,000 were asylum seekers from Africa mm-hmm. every year, that would have a cost of $9.4 billion every year. Oh, God. So, as I said, you can't, you can't move the figures across that. But just to give you an indicative sense of how bad the problems are, if those figures are accurate, 
Because obviously that's a lifetime cost, but you've also got that amount of people coming in every year, and not just in Ireland, across all of Europe. And then we have so, to consider, as Neil has pointed out, if the referendum is successful, we will, we will, we will make it easier for more expanded uh, family reunification, not non-family reunification, for people to, for people who are successful applicants to bring in people after them. So the 15,000 may not just be 15,000. I would be curious to know what the figures are for countries that operate kind of rather strict points visa systems. You know, like I, I think they, they did it, they were doing that in Canada, uh, I think in Australia, you know, where they, they, they identified that they have specific skill shortages and you, you just can't get a visa unless you have certain levels of education or if you have you you have a you like you're an electrician or you're a plumber or you have a background in data analytics or something you know something that they particularly want or need and you get so many points for if your age i think probably health issues so there's an age element certainly to it as well and you get so many points and for globally and then you get you get your visa but without that i, I would be curious to see what kind of effect that has although the australians don't have a problem with pensions do they the, the australians actually have a very good pension system they, our friend jill kirby wrote about that for us once uh, that they, that we need to be moving towards an australian system but anyway i think the problem with the point system is how do you weigh those points and i am there's not a lot of research like this out there i don't think you could do this type of research in ireland i don't think we have good enough data that you could actually work it out and I think that's the case in a number of countries, which if you think about it, Michael, if you're doing something in order to basically keep the pension system moving mm -hmm. and keep the economy moving, but you're not actually measuring what the impact of it is, that seems negligent. Yeah. I mean, if you're bringing these people in in order to fulfill a certain function, it would be nice to know that you're you're keeping track of the the fiscal realities that that they, they, they were actually fulfilling the function that you believe that they were, rather than having, a shall we say, a net negative effect. On the subject of family reunification, I remember hearing a year ago, or a couple of years ago, I have no idea if this was it's true, and I never looked into it, that the highest number that had ever been, that anyone had ever put in for family reunification was 70 people. And I would suspect, as I said, I don't know if that's true, and I suspect if it was true, yeah, they didn't get 70 people. No, because no, that's not going to happen. Taking the piss. No. But, yeah, Michael, were we to open from family to durable relationship? Yeah. If they had been able to get 70 people in using these figures, we would expect that to cost the state 74, or sorry, 44 million euro. <laughs> it's not a great system. <laughs> it's not brilliant. No, it's really not. Mm. But, yeah, Western immigrants uh, perform on the whole better and western immigrants and, and you know the japanese which again like i think if you, if you told people most people would go yeah okay that makes sense japanese americans and the swiss wow who would have guessed that bringing in japanese people and swiss people would actually be good for the economy i i would amaze, i'm amazed at that uh, i'd be curious to see i i i i i i would i meant to do this and i didn't do it to have a look at the results for the chi for chinese populations yeah i didn't see one that was um that that was specific to the chinese there was one thing i saw that was interesting they say there's a robust correlation between 
at net contribution and scores on what they call uh, Sito's end of primary school test, which is uh, apparently a, a student assessment scale for primary education. And they say that a one point higher Sito score, and it's out of 50, I believe, means roughly 20,000 extra in a net contribution over the life of that person. Hmm. I would suspect, if that's the result they're getting, that that test roughly relates to IQ. And what they're saying is that basically smarter people are more likely to actually be a benefit to your com- to your country than people who are not. Well, yeah, or it may just, it may also reflect simply educational levels, average of educational levels of the people coming in, and which would, you would imagine when you're talking about a globally, a, a, a globally diverse input of people coming into their country, you're going to have massively variant levels of basic levels of, of education, whether primary or secondary, let alone third level. So your average, your average educational competency is going to be massively variant and that in a modern economy nobody is going to be surprised that that's going to have very significant economic uh, outcomes if these if this study is is correct michael um and these figures are borne out europe in attempting to deal with a problem has just created an exceptionally powerful second problem because again these these costs are across the life of these people Gary, doesn't it make perfect sense in, in, in a way when we're talking, not necessarily, I'm not talking about the, the predictability about the fact, the numbers, the, the net numbers that we're talking about, the, that surprise, but the fact that very poor people should be attracted to a place where they have large and for, from their own, from their experience, extravagantly funded social welfare systems. Why would that surprise anybody? Why would it surprise people that there is, with, with, there seems to, I, mean, I suppose, there seems to be an unwillingness to to admit that there is a simple, strong, inward draw into Europe because of the way we organise our social welfare systems, and that is a perfectly normal and rational thing response from very poor people to so, to uh, this shining hill that they see where they can go in and they can have a level of service and a level of security personal security housing and whatever that is far beyond what they 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 can reasonably expect to get where they're living why would be why are we surprised that people are going to come into that people rightly recognized a problem that the pension system requires constant growth in the population yeah and as people live longer and the pension age doesn't move, the amount of people needed increases quite substantially. I mean, when pensions were first brought in, you were not having a pension and then living a long life afterwards. It was just not happening. Whereas now you could be on a pension for 30 years. So there's an interesting point they make in this study where they actually explicitly say that trying to solve this true immigration is a pyramid scheme. And they say that if you want to keep the same ratio as you have now or sorry even moving the dutch pension age to 70 you would need a hundred million people living in the country by 2200 the country currently has 17 million people (laughs) so let's say that's that's not likely and then they also make the point that one of the reasons it's also not working 
but also is actually <laughs> making this not cost as much as it could otherwise, is the fertility of immigrant groups drops below the replacement level actually fairly quickly, which is something we've seen across all of Europe as well. Immigrant groups start with large families, but then they rapidly start to come to what is the norm in the society. And that seems to be happening more rapidly than it used to. It used to take longer. Now it seems to be happening pretty well after one generation, they start to revert to the the national averages, or shall we say the European averages. I mean, if in the early 2000s, um, going into the 2000s and 10s, there was this constant refrain of, um, immigration from Islamic countries means there's going to be just this incredible amount of um, growth of Islam in Europe. And there's just going to be an incredible amount of, of migrants because they're just going to have so many children. And then that didn't happen. I mean, you saw a growth, certainly, in the percentage of Europe that was, uh, that was Islamic due to immigration, but not what was predicted at the time because the fertility rates just collapsed. Just collapsed. That's what I said. Well, before we go, we should look very quickly at the opinion poll, because I know some of the listeners will have noted it. I thought the most interesting thing was the amount of people who agreed with uh, Mary Lou and Sinn Féin's policy on housing. But I suppose we should actually go through the the normal poll itself first uh, very quickly. Good news for Sinn Féin, I suppose, because having gone through a bit of a bad patch with polling, they're up 2% and they're back on the magic three. It's only three zero, but it's still, they're in the 30s rather than in the 20s. So that's good news. There was an interesting note in the um, in the Indo when they were publishing this. This is an Ireland Thinks poll. Um, and they say that the public appears to have weighed in behind Miss McDonald with Sinn Féin. And the poll bounce also comes after Sinn Féin leader hardened her stance on immigration and said it was a mistake to give Ukrainian refugees fleeing the Russian invasion a special status in Ireland. That's an interesting thing for the Irish Independent to write. Yeah. More than it's... Because these polls, you're always assuming why the changes have happened. So there's many things you could say about it, but that's what they chose to say. So I wonder if that is the general thinking here. I mean, also Fine Gael down 1 to 20, Fine Fall down 2 to 17. That's not a good number. Solidarity People for Profit down 1, Labour down 1, Independence and Others up 3. 17%. 17% of people willing to vote for an independent or other candidate. Also, Green Party, Labour, Solidarity People for Profit, Ain 2 all polling at the same number. Yeah. Which is, I mean, fantastic news for Aintu and terrible news for everyone else. Uh, okay, we saw, of course, uh, I, I'm sure you saw that Ivana was flying uh, a bit of a kite there about the possibility of a merger between the Social Democrats and the Labour Party. Yeah, and I just I, I kind of imagined her and Holly uh, Cairns in the same room and the parasite just taking itself off Ivana of so it could latch on to... <laughs> Holly Cairns and the Social Democrats. I understand why Labour would want to make that offer, or at least to be seen to be making that offer to the public. Mm. I don't know why the Social Democrats would want it. And Michael, if they were to negotiate the, uh, a merger with the parties, I'll give you a scenario. I want you to tell me if you think it's likely. Okay. It's Ivana Batrick saying, well, about the name, obviously because Labour has you know a long history and we're the party of Connolly, we should obviously keep the Labour name. Yeah. Do you think she'd do that? Well, I did actually 
participated in a couple of conversations with uh, people talking about the naming issue. Um, it would be very hard, I think, emotionally for the Labour Party membership to agree to a merger which saw the party effectively disappear. For, to saw to for the, that name to go out once as Labour like to say they are the oldest political party in Ireland, <clears throat> in some senses older than Sinn Fein. So I don't know. I mean, one 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 the one possibility that was mentioned by a couple of <laughs> I don't know how well this will go up north of the border was that it would be the Social Democratic and Labour Party. So we would have the SDLP down south. I mean, amusing, but uh, not likely. Not likely. I I wonder if Patrick is legitimately interested in this or is simply saying because she wants to attract some of their voters. And, I mean, if you're Labour and you're polling at 3% and most of your heavy hitters have either said they're not running or, or they're gone or they're desperately going to try and get to Europe or out of the country, well, you, what do you even offer? You know, the way, you know when politicians tell you in those hushed tones about internal party polling that they've seen and your my first reaction is always yeah yeah i think that there's a very decent chance that this poll never happened and if there was a poll it was the most ridiculously cack-handed thing you could imagine and it has absolutely no value at all so leaving that doubt aside i talked i i was told that there were internal party polling which has scared the bejesus out of both finnegale down one and twenty who and, and consequently, actually, people in Finnegan saying that they're who said to me they they have seen some polling which they don't understand why they're doing so well relatively in the the national polls because they said this is not what they're seeing now this may be that they're breaking they're looking at lo- more say more, more local areas more rural areas and they just they're doing okay in the urbans but they're going to be slaughtered uh, when they get out to the farms. But that the Labour Party is looking down the barrel of very, very few TGs indeed, shall we say. And that there is within the party a a growing concern that they may be ending up with possibly George Lawler taking Brendan Howland's seat. And that's it. There's nobody knows if um, the former leader who sits, uh, Kelly, think that Kelly might hold a seat, but there's no certainty that Kelly will run. They say I don't now. This may all be complete bullshit. The kind and somebody's playing internal party politics in the Labour Party, but it may simply be that that there is a sense in Labour that they have to do something, because Ivana does not want to be the person who led the Labour Party into the desert and then couldn't find her way out again. I think something that is probably going to be going through Labour's mind at the minute is that Ivana Batchik has never won a general election, and she's lost. Should we say, Michael, a couple of elections. She gets in a by-election. Yes. Entirely different dynamic to an actual election. So you're going in at 3% with a party leader who has personally never managed to win yeah. the election that you actually care about. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a tricky time for the Labour Party. And I think they're just, I think, basically looking for something. Because what, what can you do? I mean, they... What can they say that is new or different or interesting? They can't move effectively. There's no space on the progressive left in Ireland for them to do anything that somebody hasn't done already. Labour's positioning is basically Fianna Fáil, or at least what Fianna Fáil is attempting to be, without any of the resources of Fianna Fáil or the history of it. 
I think what we see in labor is the actual, shall we say, Michael, the raw viability of where Fianna Fáil has put itself if it wasn't Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil is living on its heritage listed status. It's getting 17% of the polls because there are still 17% of the people left in the country who think of themselves, who self-identify as Fianna Fáilers, that it is in some sense part of their identity, it is part of their family identity. The number of people who are in Fianna Fáil that are there because they've been attracted by this wonderful new turn towards progressive and advanced liberal politics, I'm very, very sceptical indeed. If they did not have that famous core vote, I suspect that Fianna Fáil wouldn't be much different to the, where the Social Democrats and the Labour Party are. If that independence and others vote was c- captured by one party, yes. now it's never going to be, because in Ireland, in votes for independence have largely taken the place of what would in most other countries go to a right-wing party. So in general, the independent vote tends to be more conservative, but not all of it. Some is, is quite radical. And a lot of it is kind of a, a weird populism. It's very hard to quantify. But if it did come behind one party, that party would be the size of Fianna Fáil. Yeah. It would be the same size on this poll as Social Democrats, Solidarity, People for Profit, Green Party, Labour and Ain2 combined. We've talked before, Michael, about the space in Irish politics and how no one is interested in filling it amongst the major parties. But you've, if you're Fine Gael or you're Fianna Fáil, or even if you're Sinn Féin, and you have more advanced polling on this, if you're doing your job, than anyone else has access to, because you can put quite a lot into private polling, you know where these people are, and you still don't move to pick them up. You just leave them there for someone else to take, on the assumption that no one will take them, so you'll be fine. It's yeah. just bad politics. Like, can you imagine if this if this was the scenario a Hearn had walked into when he got into Fianna Fáil, when he got into the upper echelons of it? Like, he would have just taken it. And he would, would have knifed anyone who tried to stop him. I think also there's, oh, I don't know. For, I, I really, it, we, you could speculate forever about what Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael should be doing. I think in a sense Fianna Gael are where they are. That, Fianna Gael are in roughly the right place for them for them to be this is this is the party they have been evolving into since the 80s since garrett and since the constitutional crusade and all that and they've had moments where maybe under bruton they became a little bit more socially conservative more right of center and then shifted back a bit whatever but i think Fianna Fáil really are living on the cadaver of the former party and the the danger i think for Fianna Fáil at any one stage in any one constituency now is that a sufficiently popular, sufficiently charismatic councillor who sounds and looks like a Fianna Fáiler did 10 years ago and gets pissed off with the party because the party doesn't give him the chance to run or does the dirt on him in some way or he just decides, listen, I think I have a better chance running as an independent and gets a, has a group around him. I think there are so many Fianna Fáil seats that are potentially at risk because in that 17% the number of Fianna Fáilers who are who really feel comfortable with the direction that Michal has taken we know the demographics of the party we I think Fianna Fáil I'm right in saying has the oldest voters so I I think that they're they're in a they're in a potentially very fragile situation where 
there are going to be TDs who are very aware that they're in a position that they can be picked off. That the, the right sniper and that independent, so I suppose this, that independent vote, that seventy percent. I don't think that's a ceiling. No, I think it has a ceiling. Probably somewhere in the low twenties. I just off the top of my head somewhere. But there's, I think there's growth there. There are there are still voters in in all of the top three parties. I think there are voters in Sinn Fein. We've talked before about that gap, that values gap that exists between the Sinn Féin voter and the Sinn Féin leadership. I, I think you're right. I think there is a certain comfort being taken in the fact it is very difficult to start a serious political party in Ireland, and it would require people of unusual drive, and it would require front people who have either a degree of, of charisma, which is unusual in Ireland, or is just so attuned to what people want that they can basically use that as a substitute for charisma while still requiring some amount of it. And it's very difficult to get those things. I've also talked to Fine Gaelers who think they're going to underperform the polls. And I should note at this point that Michael is right. Oftentimes when people inside parties talk about polls, those polls never happened. And sometimes they're just bullshitting you. But sometimes they've been told by someone else in the party that they happened and they believe it. Yes. Yeah. So the parties are not these incredibly rational, logical machines internally. They get, they're like the markets, there are bear and bull moments. And sometimes a party just becomes consumed with one or the other. So I, I, I've certainly heard that. I haven't heard that from as many of the Finna fallers. And I've assumed up to this point that the reason is that a lot of the Fianna Fáil seats are basically personal seats. That it is the person who holds them rather than the party as such, at least in a lot of the country. But I don't know how true that is anymore. I think there's still a degree of truth to that because you have to remember that what Fianna Fáil votes-wise now is pretty well where they were in 2011. And only the strong survived the great massacre of 2011. So the people that survived in those seats that survived or those who almost survived and then maybe picked up seats since then come back and have come back into the dawn have tended to be the people who had strong personal votes, who had deep roots in place, had good organisations and were just good at doing their job. They were good TDs. They were good local politicians. So... I, but what you're saying about Fine Gael, I think actually that's true because I was talking to a Fine Gael about that, and he and uh, we were, and that kind of was what we ended up thinking was that things may not be in some ways as bad on the real numbers for Fine Gael, but there's a sense within Fine Gael, particularly within Fine Gael outside Dublin, that they are they have got this that they are terrified, and I, I I've I've been talking to Fine Gaelers all over South Leinster and in Munster. And again and again and again, they keep saying to me, oh, it's going to be horrible. Oh, it's going to be so bad. Oh, I don't want to canvas. And it's possible they've just got themselves into this mindset that they've just got into this bull market, this bear market rather, that Fine Gael are a bear market and they just want to, they're just going to fall like a stone. But in, in reality, maybe things aren't as bad as they think they are. They're, one of the reasons is that also they, what they're getting it where they're getting it really in the neck are from very traditional Fine Gael voters. And that's what's worrying them. But they, they may actually be sweeping up the, the more uncommitted, the less the less political voters are, are coming in to top up. Uh, they're 
people who don't want to vote for Fianna Fáil for whatever reasons, they're not Sinn Féin voters, they won't vote for Sinn Féin, so they'll yeah, I'll vote for Fine Gael. It's, it's It's been okay. I quite like Leo. But because you've got this disaffection, particularly personally with Leo, with some of those hard-line, old-fashioned, traditional Fine Gael voters, it's, it's creating an amplifying effect. And that's really that's creating this anxiety within Fine Gael in rural in the rural areas that maybe it won't won't come out in reality in the election. I think also something that is is hurting them kind of <laughs> mentally, um, and we talked about this, Michael. I think about a year ago, maybe over that, where we were saying that based on what we'd heard, we thought somewhere I think it was we said between eight and twelve, yes, at a minimum, yes. Fine Gael TDs were simply not going to run. And I received a bit of pushback after that from people in the know who were like, that is ridiculous that, you know, two or three, but no, no, it's not that bad. And all I can say to that is, well, look at us now. Look at us now, yeah. So losing, you know, the best thing you can have in an Irish election if you want to win is having won before. So losing all these people makes every seat more difficult. And so I think that is that is legitimately impacting on them. Um, but I, I think we're we're going over, Michael. But there is one thing I did want to touch on Mary Lou's point very quickly. Oh yes, about the house crisis. The polls, yeah. So the polls say that uh, Mary Lou. Sorry, I should explain this properly. Mary Lou has come out and said that they want to bring the average house prices uh, down to three hundred thousand in Dublin. Now the poll says that two in five people, forty four percent, believe it will happen while 39% believe it can. Just to give a bit of a marker here for people, in 2011, in Q4 2011, the worst part of the crash, which was, again, the worst economic wipeout I think Ireland has ever received, prices in Dublin were averaging 194,000. That is during the crash. Even you go back a year before, and I think they were on about 290,000. Now that's in the crash, but not at the worst part of it. Sinn Féin's policy is that they can reduce house prices basically to what they were during the crash. And I should note that that's not adjusted for inflation. And for listeners who aren't familiar with that, 300,000 in 2010 is not worth what 300,000 is now. Inflation has meant that the comparable figure would probably be would be different. But I I don't see how Sinn Féin think they'll get there. I mean, you're talking about massive reductions in the average price of a house. So either you start producing massive amounts of houses that are under 300,000 and drag the average down, or all house prices go down. And if house prices go down in Dublin... How do you do that with also cratering the price of houses around the country? Because Dublin is always the high watermark. And coupled with that, we have high levels of inward migration, most of which is settling in Dublin. So the population is constantly going up. So demand is constantly increasing. And you would need to build tens of thousands of houses a year just to keep pace with the demand. How do you do this? We are not yet keeping pace. We are not yet keeping pace with the demand which is already in the economy for housing in the Dublin and the Greater Dublin area. I think that, that that's an important point. It's not that the demand has been met. It's not the reason why housing has started to kind of 
move, you know, stagnate and, and move down slightly in certain areas. It's that we've hit a point where most people can't afford it because of the constraints on bank lending. Yeah, it's affordability is driving prices down. It's not anything else. Well, I mean, it's affordability backed by legislation. Well, yes. I mean, that's, it's created. That puts a hard cap on what you can yeah. actually spend on a house. If that was not there, God knows what house prices would be. No, I think this is just magical thinking. I mean, now, listen, if you were to sit down with mad, crazy right-wingers like you and me and a couple of our mates in a room and tell us, give us a piece of paper and a pencil, we would come up with 10 or 15 things that we would do tomorrow that we would, we believe would free up the housing market, would stimulate housing, uh, would increase construction and increase the speed of construction and lower the cost of construction. However, none of that's going to happen. The only thing that I think Sinn Féin could do in their ideological position that could lower these prices is to create a system where certain housing projects can be done outside of the planning system nearly entirely. Um, where they can basically force through large-scale construction projects, which will use state land and will basically agree to not pass the cost of the land onto the consumer. Yeah. And even then, and you know, involve a whole host of other things like reducing the fees to builders, uh, reducing VAT on those particular projects. There's there's loads. Because the government costs are, are an incredible part of, of, of the the actual construction costs at the minute. So the government could do a lot in very selected ways to, to do that. But you would be talking, it would be an immense project. We don't have the, the actual construction uh, labor force to do it. Attempting to do it would drive the price of construction sky high. And the I, I was pricing something recently, Michael, for which the materials were about 80,000 and the labor was over 300,000. And that is not unusual. It is labor, materials were going crazy for a couple of years and they're still high relative to what they were. But the cost of labor is insane. As, as regards the, the government inputs to costs, we've talked about this many times before. There have been papers done by people like Ronan Lyons and others, and we've talked about those. Yeah. Carol Dieter has done a very good paper. Absolutely. Well. There are lots of things that they could do that would reduce the actual cost of construction. Then there are issues around the cost of supplies. I mean, it, there are interesting questions. And if you look at the cost of certain basic building supplies in Italy or in Poland, and you compare them to what you're paying for them here, there are massive differences, really massive differences between the price of of basic materials between here and the continental Europe. And that's an interesting question of why that's happening. And what could be done about that? But I go back to, the, we were talking to our, uh, to some, the, an accountant recently. He said, once upon a time, they used to say that accountants ran the world. He said, no longer, Michael. Electricians and plumbers run the world. Because we have already, right now, got a significant skills bottleneck within the economy when it comes to construction. I am not sure how much more spare capacity there is within the Irish construction industry. No, we're, we're pulling in massive amounts of foreign labourers. We have a whole host of government projects that they've said they'll back, including the MICA issue. All of the home renovations that need to be done for the green thing. And there's talk, you know, Michael, we've got to do more to train up people. We've got to do more of that sort of thing. And yeah, some of that would help 
I mean, an increase in the social prestige of tradesmen would also help and more of a focus on, you know, entrepreneurial people doing that kind of work would be legitimately helpful. But it's very difficult to do that quickly. And also lots of people aren't going to be interested because it's difficult work. And also, and I think this is an important point, Michael, it's cyclical work, which is to say you have boom and bust. And if you were a laborer and it goes bust, well, we've seen what happens to you. You either go bankrupt or you leave the country. And that was relatively recently, so people can still remember it. I think one other option they could do, Michael, is sell under cost. Yeah. Sell under cost to people. But here's the problem with that. If you're, let's say you want to bring it to 300,000 and the entire cost of the labor and everything is 320. So you say, okay, we'll take 20,000 off it and we'll sell it. And the the state will just hit the 20,000. I think if you say that to people, most people will say, yeah, okay, that sounds reasonable. If you build 50,000 houses a year, let's say they actually go to where where they're saying they'll have to go. That would be a billion euro in 20,000s that you've knocked off things. And that's ignoring the fact that, you know, you'll have to take, uh, I mean, you'll take in relative cost on not using the land for other things, on not charging the cost of land. There's a whole host of ways where if you try and subsidize this, someone is paying for it and it will very quickly become figures that will astound and scare you i i am profoundly skeptical of demand side solutions to supply side problems and that's essentially what they will be doing they will be saying okay we're going to it's like it's it's it will be a version of what they say okay what we're going to do is we're going to increase the first-time buyer's grant, and instead of being forty thousand, we're going to make it sixty thousand or whatever. And all that happened was the price of houses went up by twenty thousand, because unless you have really, you genuinely have, you have really solved the the, the problem of supply, and you have resolved the problems within the market of the bottlenecks regarding. I mean, if you're going to build fifty thousand, what's that going to do, for example, to labour costs? Oh, <laughs> Michael, let's not even go there. Oh, and by the way, just, just on the, the 50,000, because you might just think, oh, that's a, that's a random number. In January of last year, uh, the Irish Times got access to unpublished research by the Housing Commission. And the Housing Commission, in this unpublished research, said that Ireland would need 62,000 houses built every year until 2050 to meet demand. Because you don't have to just meet the new demand you have to meet the pent up demand yeah so you're you're talking if you try to subsidize that i mean the costs would just become they'd be absolutely unsustainable it, it just wouldn't happen i think the only way you do this is you lower building standards yes and that's gonna i mean if you're really into environmentalism and, and all that sort of stuff how do you do that while doing that? Because you're going to have to lower the energy standards. You would have to lower the energy standards substantially. And people will do what they did with bedsits and say people shouldn't have to live like that. And then they'll close the bedsits and they won't allow you to build your homes without thinking that, well, if you allow people to live like that, people can actually have homes because they can be built. Yeah for a reasonable cost and a reasonable time frame. And if you don't, and you say everyone needs an A2 rated house, well, they're very expensive to build and they take time. And we need to build, you know, 62,000 of them a year, every year for the next generation, which 
I'm just going to come out and say it, Michael. We're not building 62,000 A2 rated homes every year until 2050. That's just not happening. No. Not today or tomorrow anyway. Also, the fun thing there is if the population doesn't stabilize and it continues at its current rate, our population will go into a massive decline at some point, at which point you'll just have hundreds of thousands of empty houses decaying all over the country, which we have paid massive amounts for and won't have the population to sustain the debts from. So uh, good luck with that one. And on that happy note, I think we shall say goodbye to our dear listeners and we shall be back next week after Gary comes back and having told the nice people of Brussels all about free speech. Until then, bye-bye. All the best.